This week on ASR, we're exploring the seven deadly sins. So another producer, Casey, and I decided to watch a film all about them. So we're watching the movie Seven by David Fincher. Yeah, I'm really excited. I've never seen it before. So it's basically this movie. Um, I've seen it once before, but I had to stop because I got too scared. Um, it's this movie. Oh, <laughs> God. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm like really easy to scare. So it's this movie that's basically um, there's like a serial killer that these cops are trying to find and he keeps killing people like based off the seven deadly sins. So there's one that's like sloth and one that's like lust, I think. Um, all of the murder scenes are really memorable. Oh, yay. That's so exciting. <laughs> I love horror movies, but I'm such a wimp when I watch them. So this will be really great. All right. So we're about to start the movie. Um, it's been a really long time since I've seen it. So we're going to go ahead and press play. Warning, this contains spoilers for the movie 7 if you haven't seen it. It's a pretty gruesome movie and we are discussing some details. Also, we don't know any of the characters' names, so we're just calling them by the actor. Morgan Freeman went back to the Gluttony House because um, I guess he's haunted by this crime, right? And he just pulled out these like slivers of metal and now he's pulling out the refrigerator. Oh, okay. Yeah, behind the refrigerator is gluttony, like scratched into the wall. There's a little note. Oh my God, what does it say? But of course, this movie fits into a much longer history of the seven deadly sins. There are seven deadly sins gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, pride, lust, and envy. Seven. The idea of vice started in the very early days of Christianity, particularly with ascetic Christian monks who would spend years in solitude in the desert. Any sort of possession, will, or desire was sinful. At that time, consumption beyond what's needed to stay alive was seen as gluttonous and opening up the floodgates for other sinful behavior. Any sort of recognition or credit you gave yourself was considered prideful. Of the seven sins, pride was considered the worst one. They thought this kind of behavior brought them closer to God. Are the crimes increasing in like magnitude and how horrific they are to reflect how bad he thinks the sins are, do you think? Yeah, definitely. I mean, lust was pretty bad. Um, and it kind of, he alluded to the fact that he's punishing these people. He alluded to the fact that the man who he was punishing was married. Um, and so the next three, we have envy, wrath, and pride. Um, and I, I think, yeah, I think it will go up. Um, I don't want to know how, but we'll see, I guess. In the movie, Kevin Spacey's character kind of plays God, punishing people for committing these sins, which he thinks have become too common in our culture. All right, so we're at this like final scene. There's about like five minutes left in the movie. Yeah. So he's having a box delivered to them in the middle of nowhere. They have the murderer, serial killer John. In like the middle of nowhere and this yeah. guy's like delivering the package and to the middle of nowhere and it's for the detective from the guy yeah they're opening in it right now <gasps> he killed brad pitt's wife oh my god envies uh, his sin that he was so jealous of his life oh my gosh and wrath he's gonna kill him he's gonna kill him for wrath Moving forward from early Christian times, the ideas regarding these sins have obviously changed significantly. There's been a public shift that focuses more on overconsumption rather than just the consumption. Images of gluttony, greed, and lust are abundant in our media. I really didn't think Brad Pitt was going to kill him, but he did. 
So I saw all the seven deadly sins carried out and it's like it was so interesting because it kind of showed at the at the very end, you know, how irresistible and how natural it is to kind of fall, you know, victim almost mm-hmm. to these sins that we've ascribed. Yeah. And it was interesting too, because we were talking about which one would be the last one, the big one, and it was because it was his sin. Committing one of these seven deadly sins is definitely less egregious in modern society, but that doesn't mean the ideas of them don't influence us. And how he could like use Brad Pitt's sin, wrath, for his own benefit. So it's how like the predictability of humans he could anticipate. And that was so creepy. I know. The music for this piece was created by Poddington Bear under a Creative Commons license. Oh my god. Oh, that's oh. God. Oh my god. This is next level, honestly. For American Standard Radio in Bloomington and my co-producer Casey Ross, I'm Abby Gibson. Welcome to American Student Radio at WIUX LP Bloomington. I'm your host for today, Carter Barrett. You just heard our producers Abby Gibson and Casey Ross watching the movie Seven. If that wasn't enough of a hint already, our show this week is about the seven deadly sins. In case you need a bit of a reminder of what those seven sins are, they're sloth, envy, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, and pride. I was interested in these seven topics because I think they're more pervasive than we realize. We know right off the bat that these are seen as negative traits, but why? And have they always been that way? For the show this week, our producers have created one piece per sin, so to speak. But I want to emphasize that while, yes, these are labeled as the seven deadly sins, that isn't to say that we think they're sinful or any of the topics covered are necessarily negative. I think it's an important distinction to make since a lot of the topics we're covering this episode are sensitive ones. Basically, our theme serves more as a means of topical discussion rather than any harsh judgments from us. Now let's get back to the show. From blue, from, uh, again, live, live, what is it? Oh, ready? Should I do it again? From Indiana University in Bloomington. From Indiana University in Bloomington. This is... This is... This is American Student Radio. Real chill. Real chill. Aliens. Conspiracy. Journalism. And lesbians. The definition of sloth is, quote, is a reluctance to work or make an effort. Unfortunately, for people who struggle with mental illness, this is a common stigma because they often appear unmotivated and apathetic. Our producers, Jessica Smith and Hannah Boomshine, looked deeper into depression to dispel, dispel this misconception. It's very mental and physical. It's like exhaustion, loss of like emotion almost extreme like numbness it feels like having a cold like all the other symptoms of a cold without the snot piper lacy has been dealing on and off with depression since he was a preteen sometimes his actions might be construed as being lazy i procrastinate on almost everything (laughs) because everything seems so big and daunting and then again it just makes you so like tired to like even get started, so I am always doing everything like the night before. (laughs) 
Dr. Peter Finn explained the psychological basis for why low motivation is associated with depression. Let's say on a, on a particular day you get up and you think about your day and you think, well, you know, I have these courses to do and okay, that's good, you know, and I'm going to see a friend maybe or you, you have other things that, that you want to do that are enjoyable, right? So that you have various things that kind of get you going or are, are enjoyable for you. But when you're depressed, the things that used to be enjoyable aren't. Sometimes, these feelings come from a place of self-doubt. Being a perfectionist, I think, is like a common attribute of a depressed person because you have all of these high standards that you can like never meet. You know, failure is a fact of life. Right? We all have small failures. Hopefully we have a lot of successes, you know. But the point is, right, we have failures and we move on. Well, sometimes individuals take failures to heart and they start ruminating about it. You know, the, the, the brain is an extremely complicated organ, and um, there are a lot of cases of depression that really differ quite a bit from other cases. In mood, some people have extremely negative, sad moods, and others may experience more hostile and, and uh, upset moods. Others are, are, the mood could be, in fact, almost that they feel numb. Some have a lot of anxiety along with the two. With all these emotions, it can be hard to relate to someone you love if you're not feeling the same way trying to explain to people like well I'm tired like that doesn't make sense to them so definitely like people assuming um, your actions are a result of laziness and also um, people thinking that you're kind of like cold the problem is when you're depressed you actually become less enjoyable to be with and it becomes more difficult for friends so when you're when you're depressed you tend to alienate your social support Piper says that a support system is important. One way he deals with depression is by sharing experiences with others. And Piper says that we shouldn't be afraid to talk about it. I'm just always like, LMAO, I am depressed. <laughs> and everyone's like, wow, me too, and I'm like, great. From American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Jessica Smith. And I'm Hannah Boomershine. Music courtesy Ketza and Hermelon. And thank you to Piper Lacey and Dr. Peter Finn. So much of envy comes from comparing ourselves to others. ASR reporter Tristan Fitzpatrick examines his own feelings of envy during his senior year. Good afternoon. I'm getting ready for yet another career event. Senior year has been marked by one thing for me, job hunting. Lots and lots of job hunting. At this point, LinkedIn has become my most visited webpage. Why am I so determined to find work? Part of it is envy. I'm incredibly envious of some people around me. You know who those people are. The I-have-it-all-together crowd. They have resumes stacked with internships, volunteer experience, academic honors. I feel left behind compared to them. Some of them have already landed jobs. How is that possible? I don't want to feel envious of anyone anymore. Why should I feel envy? Sure, those people with the great GPAs may seem like they have it all together, but no person is perfect. Nobody. Well, except for Beyonce. I'm ready to let envy go. But how do I do it? You feel thankful for what you have. You stop comparing yourself to others. You do all the other things feel-good websites <laughs> say you should do. But more than anything, you have faith that things will work out. This is the hard part. 
You probably won't get that perfect first job right out of college. Or for a while, perhaps. But you will do a lot of living and a lot of growing along the way. The price of admission you pay is letting the envy go. I'm ready to let envy go. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Tristan Fitzpatrick. Lust, a sin characterized by strong sexual desires, is all around us. Tinder and Grindr are very popular in the college environment, but what does this mean for students? And is it necessarily wrong to use these apps? This week, our reporters Angelo Bautista and Noni Ford explored how lust is embodied in technology in the 21st century. Lust. 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 Hi, I'm Angelo Bautista. Hi, I'm Noni Ford. Hi, I'm Abby Gouldy. And we are going to talk about lust on college campus, which obviously involves talking about Tinder. And we're going to talk about our histories with Tinder first. So, uh, Angelo? Personally, I used to use Tinder a lot, like freshman year, and have since stopped. Um, so I don't use Tinder anymore. Yeah. I have never used Tinder, but yet have made several Tinder profiles for almost all my friends. I don't know why I do it. For some reason, I put into this role. Abby? <laughs> I used to use Tinder, but I don't know. It just felt like just such a mindless activity, just swiping through it, that I just kind of gave it up because I was like, this is a waste of time. I mean, have you found any like kind of success on Tinder before? Like, have you ever been on a Tinder date? I've never been on a Tinder date, but I have had several matches and I've had like long conversations with people on there. It just, I don't know, it's just never really been a thing that has really interested me to go on a Tinder date. There's also, I feel like, this um, an almost like sketchy element to it where I'm like kind of scared to go on a Tinder date with anyone. Yeah, I would be really afraid to go on a Tinder date actually. Um... I don't know. There's no need for it anymore for me. Um, I'm out of the game, so I'm taken. <laughs> Sorry, guys. No Tinder. Um, I think I would feel more comfortable going on a Tinder date than a Craigslist date, <laughs> but that's also just me, to be honest. So, do you guys think you can use uh, Tinder to find friends or possibly love? Um, I think Tinder tries really hard to sell itself as a friendship app instead of a hookup app because I know they're really pushing for you know the tinder hangouts thing where you like try to get groups together that you of people you haven't met to go do stuff which orgies yeah that just sounds like, <laughs> sounds like no that just sounds like a swingers thing um yeah but uh I don't know people say on their profile that I'm just looking for friends right now but you're on Tinder. I don't think you're really gonna find friends on Tinder. I'm sure it happens, but I mean, I wouldn't wanna say that I met my friend through Tinder. Yeah, I don't know. There was this one person that I was kind of friends with, but then when I deleted the app, I sort of stopped talking to them. So I feel kind of bad about that. But on the whole, I don't really think you could find a lasting relationship through Tinder because I feel like talking to somebody that way is one thing, but then once you actually meet them, there's just like becomes a sort of disconnect there where you're like, oh, well, you're not exactly the person I thought you'd be or whatever, you know what I'm saying? I mean, first impressions go, or kind of the same thing in person. I mean, Tinder's obviously very different because it's not the actual person in front of you, 
but I definitely think it could happen. I don't know anyone that has gotten a long lasting relationship from Tinder. And I, we all joke about, you know, um, telling our kids stories about how we met, like, our significant others and we're like, oh, I met them on Tinder. And the kids were like, what's Tinder? Yeah, so it's possible, but I don't believe in it. Do you ever, do you ever think that Tinder will not exist without that sexual context? Or is it just always gonna be a hookup app? I don't know, I feel like it might always be a hookup app because I feel like the people who don't use it for that purpose leave because they realize that that's what most people use it for, so. Yeah, I think we've all gotten a lot smarter about what Tinder is. I don't think anyone's ever really gonna take it that seriously. I don't think anyone does, but still people swipe and I don't know, I can't stop them. <laughs> I actually didn't even know that it was for like hookups for a while actually because I was young and innocent but also because I think that like in the beginning it was like they were like oh it's a networking site and they're like it's a dating site and that's kind of like how it was marketed so I was like oh okay and then like I found out about like DTF and things like that and I was like well no no <laughs> I, this is not a dating oh, site I, I definitely think DTF predates tinder but, but you know online online dating and uh, yeah. all that kind of thing you the history of technology, whenever we create a new technology, we always try to find a way to have sex with it. So I think Tinder is just another step in that evolution. So. Also, I guess to me, it would be super embarrassing to put DTF next to like my name on a site that has my photo on it, but somehow it's okay when you do it on Tinder. And that's really interesting to me, the implications of that. <laughs> yeah, that's just not something I would ever be comfortable doing <laughs> under any kind of situation. Um, let's talk about queer folk on Tinder, because there's definitely, I would say, a much smaller pool for queer folk on Tinder, um, which kind of frustrates me at sometimes because I don't, straight people don't really need online dating, like you could just go out in person, but um, I don't know, I always feel weird about that. I mean, Tinder does have the option, like what? gender you want to pop up, one or both, so... I mean, there aren't very many, obviously, but it's an option. I don't know, I've, I've, like, for straight people, you can just keep on swiping to oblivion, but, you know, the, the swipes end for gay people. <laughs> At some point, your puddle will run dry. That the is well, so... the well never runs dry for straight people on Tinder. That's actually so sad, though. Like, at some point, Tinder, like, at some point when you swipe, you run outside for the day, right? Like, that's the thing that happens. Are they hour, or...? Well, I don't know if I just swiped a lot, but I would always run out of swipes within like five but that, swipes. But that doesn't mean that like there aren't more people. Like if you are um, a gay person on Tinder, like you will run out of people to swipe before you hit that swipe limit. So unless- I mean, this isn't even swipe limit. It was I just mean, running out. I mean, I, I guess it depends on like the pop, like your area and your population, like probably swiping in New York City is a lot different from swiping in Bloomington, for sure. Any parting words for our listeners who may or may not be using Tinder? It's cool to use Tinder if you want to. That's fine. Personally, I don't because I'm a Luddite. But I think a really cool alternative to Tinder is speed dating. Because I think that sounds really awesome and cool. And I think no matter what, you're going to have an interesting experience. 
I also do not advise Craigslist hookups or Craigslist misconnections. You know, I, I will say that, you know, find love wherever you want, do whatever you want on Tinder or off Tinder. It doesn't really matter to me, but um, I don't know. Don't expect everything to come online um, to like love or whatever to come from the internet. I think for a while, I'd never thought of the possibility of finding someone in real life, like meeting someone in real life in that way, because a lot of my relationships in the past have been like influenced by like the internet in some way or another. So yeah, you never know what'll happen. So keep swiping or don't, it's up to you. Just be safe. Yeah, to go off what Angela was saying, just if you want to do Tinder, that's fine. But also, you know, don't forget that there's people out there in the real world who, I don't know, you never know who you might meet. But also, if you do get on Tinder, just stay safe. That's all, that's all I'm saying. From American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Angela Batista. And I'm Noni. Our music came from Stress Waves and the Creative Commons and Public Domain Archive. Gluttony is the overconsumption or indulgence in something. I know that I drink at least one cup of coffee per day. In fact, I have one with me right now. Is that considered an indulgence? Our producers, Olivia Fahey and Sheila Raghavendran, looked into the consumption of coffee, particularly Starbucks coffee on campus. So yesterday I was in the Wells Library Cafe fixing myself a cup of coffee. A good old cup of joe. Exactly, which was so unlike myself. I hardly ever drink coffee, but yesterday I was running on five hours of sleep and I just needed something to get me through the rest of the day. And as I raised the cup to my mouth, I just saw myself spiraling into a coffee obsession. Starbucks benefits off people like me people who need coffee every day. Coffee franchises created the idea of coffee as a treat, and Starbucks is the company that emerged on top. We talked to Professor Chris Anderson, who taught a class on the history of consumer culture about this phenomenon. When I grew up, when my parents grew up, coffee was just one of the things that you did when you drank your coffee in the morning to get going in the morning. It wasn't ever, it had never had the connotation of being a treat. And that's the, one, that's the thing that Starbucks really introduced to the whole kind of cultural landscape. To get the lowdown on the obsession with Starbucks, we dropped by the Indiana Memorial Union and checked out the vibes in the Starbucks lounge. Do you come to Starbucks often? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah? About how many times a week would you say? Once a day. Once a day? Okay. Do you feel like you need coffee to get you through the day? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Can you tell me what you're drinking? Oh, it's a white chocolate mocha. How often do you get it? Oh. We go like probably like at least three times a week. Really? Like it's yeah. I, I get a lot of. Is honestly it's generous. generous. <laughs> it's generous. I have so I get a lot of. That's like all I ask for gift cards. So like sometimes I have gift cards, but a lot of the times I just spend too much money on this. I actually prefer espresso, but I've already had a lot today, so I'm trying How to calm have down. How much have you had today? Uh, I've had three cups of coffee already. And how often do you come to Starbucks specifically? Um, maybe like once every two weeks. Not super often, but yeah. sometimes. So Starbucks is more, more of an indulgence? Yeah. Yeah, I'd say that. 
why Starbucks? Why don't people buy coffee from the local coffee shops, especially here in Bloomington, where the coffee is usually cheaper and arguably better? I think it's because there's something comforting in knowing what you're going to get when you see that green and white sign, no matter where you are. It provides a certain security that you're going to get a level of quality that you want, you know, that, that you can count on. And that's important, I think, for a lot, you know, for most people. And then also it becomes, it becomes familiar because you go to your own Starbucks, wherever you're from, and then you can go to another Starbucks and know that it's going to be virtually identical experience. And that's part of what franchises do is they give you that sense of comfort. So I guess the Starbucks obsession isn't going anywhere because Starbucks isn't going anywhere. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Sheila Raghavendran. And I'm Olivia Fahey. Music provided by David Setze under a Creative Commons license. So far, we've listened to pieces about struggling with depression, comparing ourselves to others, dating apps, and also about something we all love, coffee. So we're going to take a quick break, but stay tuned. We still have great pieces coming up in just a few minutes. Thanks for listening to American Student Radio. We broadcast every Sunday at noon on WIUX 99.1. This week, we asked our producers which of the seven deadly sins they suffer from. I think I definitely suffer from gluttony the most, um, especially in regards to potatoes and Reese's peanut butter cups. I can't control myself. Uh, I would say I suffer from sloth the most. I mean, we have a piece about this, but like I have depression, and so some days it's just like really hard to motivate myself to do things. <laughs> I just don't want to. It's gotta be envy, I think. Like, I see people like on the internet, I'm like, how do they get their life so perfect? And I know it's not true, but you know, it's like hard. It's a hard, it's a hard pill to swallow. Sloth. Uh, this last weekend, I watched 13 hours of Netflix's original thing, Marvel's Luke Cage, and uh, I slept like a baby that didn't do any homework or any work. I didn't do anything. I barely fed myself. Um, I'd have to say pride because, I guess, just because I was born a Leo astrologically. <laughs> just like a white girl would say oh that. My God. I'm a Leo, so I have pridefulness. And now, back to the show. The definition of greed is an intense or selfish desire for something, especially wealth, power, or food. In North Dakota, there is a proposed pipeline that is being created that stretches across 1,100 miles. This plan brings in big oil, which means big money. However, its location is going through the Sioux Tribe Standing Rock Reservation, one of the biggest Native American reservations in the United States. Over the fall break, a group of five freshmen drove out to North Dakota to help the people staying there protecting the water against the Dakota Access Pipeline. ASR reporter Maggie Tolley brings us the story. hearing is the group crossing over the Missouri River, which is the longest river in North America, stretching 2,341 miles. 
The group traveled together for a total of 40 hours, traveling from Bloomington to North Dakota and back. Oh, I didn't know we'd be in mountain time zone. So that's better because the, we'll be there earlier than we thought. My name is Dylan Williams, and I'm a freshman, and I'm majoring in English, the focus in creative writing while minoring in philosophy. My name is Natalia Kuzbiel. I am also a freshman, and I am majoring in human biology and sociology. My name is Maggie Gates. I'm a freshman and I'm majoring in environmental and sustainability studies. My name is Ariane Kelly and I am also a freshman. I am majoring in journalism and minoring in studio art and design. My name is Rachel Dela. I'm also a freshman and I'm an exploratory major. I didn't really get annoyed with I got annoyed with a lot of you guys, but it's okay. <laughs> the idea of this trip came to freshman Natalia Kuzbiel just two weeks before at the Hoosier Climate March. There was a speaker at the end of the march. His name was Chief Michael Vargas, and he's a Native American chief, and he spoke of how environmental injustice, it correlates directly with social injustice. So after hearing about the pipeline on social media, we decided that fall break is our only chance. Within two weeks of tabling and gathering donations, the group got funding from Collins Living Learning Center and were able to make the trip a reality. We constantly had in our minds that this is what we want to do, this is the right thing to do, and we're going to do it. When we got there, everybody was very welcoming, so it made the drive completely worth it. As we entered, there was a road that led us into the campground, and it was completely surrounded with flags of different tribes from all over the states. The unity of the tribes was, you could just feel it. There's over 200 tribes represented at these camps right now. Once the group got there, they dropped off their donations and set up camp. Uh, one of our neighbors, was, two of them to the left of us were French people that came to make a documentary, and on the other side of us was a guy from California also documenting his stay. We didn't feel like foreigners just because we were from Indiana, because everybody seemed to be from everywhere. We were welcomed, and within four hours, I learned way more than I had learned by researching things on the internet. Friday night, the group walked around the campsite interviewing people and documenting their stay. It was sort of a solemn feel. The atmosphere just seemed kind of sad. We knew we were there for a purpose but the fact that this pipeline is being built heartlessly these people truly felt the pain of having to still fight for their land still fight for their culture it was also so cold i fell asleep outside right next to the fire with flames almost licking my face because i was just so cold so they're gonna live through really cold, harsh conditions through December, January. It was freezing for us already. We cannot imagine. Yeah, and, not even gonna and there's children there. The camp is currently planning and taking in donations for winter because many of these people are planning to stay here until March, which is when the pipeline's permit ends. During their stay, the group got to experience a powwow for the first time. We got to witness their prayer through dance and through song, and it was very beautiful. It kind of gave me a new appreciation to their dress, knowing that it is often appropriated by non-Native people. It was very beautiful to see the real thing, finally. Buzz of noise and energy mm, and fire yeah. crackling and it just always it was it was like it was kind of overwhelming to the senses but it was also just like very kind of entranced experiencing it with everyone at the same time I don't know I just had never seen anything really like that before we were sitting around the fire Saturday night just having a good time and it was just so hard to leave everybody who didn't want to go a lady they met named Vanessa a Navajo native gave the group a little branch of sacred pine before they left the campsite half of it we burned 
at the campground before we left and the other half we burned here when we got home the half there to leave a part of us at the campground and here so that we wouldn't feel too much sorrow in our hearts for leaving for the day and a half that we were there it certainly felt like we were making a legitimate change in this world and every single person that we left behind they're still making an impact on the community over there and just love each other as human beings. And then you come back here and no one knows a thing about what's actually going on. I sat down with Heather Williams, a Puyallup native and department secretary of the First Nations Cultural Center here at IU, to further discuss this issue and its significance. Well, I think the Dakota Access Pipeline is, is, a, is a contemporary issue that's relevant to not just me, not just Native people, but to everyone because it's a water issue and everybody needs water. One important thing to know is that the people staying at these camps who are opposed to the pipeline being built are called water protectors because they are peacefully trying to protect the water and the land. Nobody is forced to do anything they don't want to, but there have been volunteers to trespass on the construction land, knowing that of the possibility that they may get arrested. But their direct actions are very peaceful. They just they just want to go out and pray for their land. Their motto is, we're protectors, we're mindful, and we're prayerful. So their, their main goal is they're trying to accomplish this through prayer and goodwill. The group also talked about the media's role in covering the Dakota pipeline. Yeah, it's yeah peaceful. so yeah. peaceful. And people are they're just walking, they're just being together, and singing, and the media has framed it in such a negative right. light. When you enter the camp, there's a big sign that says, we are unarmed. That's something that they, are, they really yeah. want people to know, and that the media is not covering. For example, of how peaceful they are, they don't even want you wearing face masks for tear gas and pepper spray because they don't want you to approach their direct actions, their prayer ceremonies, with the expectation that we will be attacked. They, Their main goal is to pray and protect their water, and what happens, happens. They do not want to give off the impression that they're ready for a riot because it's not a riot. They want to keep that story very local and not spread because I think if there was a critical mass of people who felt that their water protectors were in the right, then then the media would have no choice but to back them. So I think as long as everyone is either oblivious or thinks that the native protectors are violent and belligerent, then they can go on, they can keep ignoring it. We learn to respect their culture and we learn to appreciate it because they have so much to offer. They're very humble and they don't feel violence or anger to the pipeline workers. They're just peaceful and they just want to protect what they have left. But I think that it's experiences like this that will help people understand where they're coming from and understand what we can do to help them out. Anybody can be an activist. It is important to stand up for what you care for. If you're passionate about something, pursue it. And if you believe in something, stand up for it because we didn't think that, we thought it was ridiculous for in two weeks to get up and go across the states to stand up against the Dakota Access Pipeline, but we did it. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Maggie Tully. Acting on wrath or intense anger is generally frowned upon in society. However, it seems that it can be more acceptable for some groups rather than others to express rage. ASR reporter Blessing Alamorati asked the question, who is allowed to be angry in today's society?
In our exploration of the Sinrath, we decided to talk to Professor Amrita Chakrabarti Myers, a history professor here at IU, whose focus is greatly on gender, race, and the life of black women in the US. The consensus is that anger is felt by everyone. However, to express it does not come without judgment for some groups of people. We're told that we're not supposed to be angry at all, but anger is more acceptable when it comes from certain people than from others. And certainly I think that when women are angry, it's extremely frowned upon. Women are expected to be polite, kind, and amenable. When we stray from this in an attempt to assert ourselves and take charge, we are deemed hysterical, irrational, or a nasty woman. Uh, but what we want to do is to replenish the Social Security Trust Fund by making... I remember thinking to myself when it happened last night, so again, an educated, opinionated, articulate, um, well, you know, seasoned, experienced woman is automatically nasty. Well, I guess most of us then, uh, at least most of the women I know, including myself, would qualify for that definition. And if that's what nasty means, then I'll take it. With the recent presidential debate, and the entire 2016 race, we see a very publicised example of how anger, coupled with racist, sexist and completely incorrect remarks, is not enough to dim the chances of one candidate. But when the other does not smile enough, they are criticised and deemed not approachable. Well, I think we, again, have to go back to the basic fact that women are not allowed to be angry at all. And we're not allowed, not only are we not allowed to be angry, we're not supposed to speak. We still live in a world that doesn't really appreciate it when women have an opinion. And we've seen it over and over again this particular election cycle that as much as we claim to have become this, you know, post-feminist 21st century society, we're uncomfortable at the thought of being led by a woman. We're uncomfortable at the prospect of women speaking for us, making policy for us, interacting with foreign leaders on our behalf. Clinton has not been allowed to just be criticised as a presidential candidate, but doubly as a woman. The ability for the righteous anger Professor Chakrabarti Myers mentions to instantly be dismissed with a simple calm down demonstrates a system that does not allow for women to be angry. Alongside the disregard of a woman's anger is the disregard of a black woman's anger. Manifesting as the trope of the angry black woman, this label not only disregards both your anger as a woman, but your anger as a black individual. I think it's important that we understand the concept or the, the concept and the construct, the historical context in which that construct was created. Um, ma many of the constructs or stereotypes that were created around black women come out of the era of slavery. The angry black woman actually doesn't. Once slavery no longer exists as um, a hierarchical sort of creating factor, new tropes have to be created to continue to denigrate and um, you know keep black men and women in their place. Black men, of course, are then portrayed increasingly as uh, beasts and rapists, um, which justifies, right, the lynching um, of black men. And for black women, they're seen as being emasculating. They're seen as being very matriarchal, very domineering, very um, taking over the family, taking power away from black men. And along with that rises up this angry black woman trope that black women that it's part of their character, that, that being these domineering, emasculating matriarchs who run the household and um, you know, run their sons and run their men, they're also angry. And they're angry at everyone and everything. They're supposedly angry at black men for not protecting them and standing up for them and 
um, you know, being able to provide for them financially. They're angry at, you know, white women for taking away um, any hope uh, of their position on the, you know, totem pole of beauty. They're angry at white men for, right, being at the very top of the hierarchy and having privilege and patriarchal privilege as well as white supremacy. So supposedly, you know, black women and women of color were angry at everybody all the time. But there's also this, you know, underlying theme that sort of then comes out then that you can't um, have a rational conversation with a black woman or a woman of color, that they are again completely in by, you know, controlled by their id or that ego emotional part of their personality, that there can possibly be no rational explanation for their anger, um, that there can't be righteous anger on the part of black women when they see sexism, when they see racism, misogyny, when they see abuse um, taking place. This constant, and it's a, it's a constant way of denigrating black women because when we do stand up for ourselves, when we do have, when we're simply assertive, when we stand up for our rights, when we stand up for other people's rights, when we stand up for what's right, no matter how politely we say it or how intellectually we say it, um, everything that we say is dismissed because we're angry. So it's not just that we ourselves are angry, the words that we say in the classroom, in the boardroom, in the political sphere are dismissed as not requiring real thought or gravitas because we are simply angry. Having to manage both scrutiny that comes with being a woman and stereotypes that are aligned with being black seems ridiculous. Just as constantly tiptoeing around a trope that dismisses valid opinions and feelings is, using it devalues views and thoughts and attributes them to something bizarrely deemed inherent. Even if I do say something with, you know, with politeness, with a very modulated tone of voice, with a smile on my face, people will still often portray me as having been the B word, right? Being angry, um, and they completely dismiss what I said because of who the speaker was. And as, a, as an educator, I find that out so completely frustrating. So who is allowed to be angry? Who is able to achieve the execution of this emotion without dismissal or irrationality being attached to it? It does not seem to be women, and with the existence of a label such as the angry black woman, it is clear that history has not bestowed this right to women of colour. We have to understand that black women might be legitimately angry given the 400 years of history we've had in this country, but I think that when you disentangle those two really insidious, you know, sort of webs, like the racialized web, the gendered web, and understand that the stereotypes of blackness catch black people, womanhood catch women, both entrap black women in a particularly unique set of stereotypes that don't actually apply to either black men or white women. I think that that education is really important in understanding where these ideas arise out of. We need to start from there and understand that every time a woman opens her mouth, she's not angry. And every time a black woman opens her mouth, she's not irrational or irrelevant. Listen to her words, think about historical context, um, and then make an intellectual decision about whether or not what she's saying comes from a place of righteous, rational anger or irrational dementia. Ideally, our anger should not be trivialized due to our gender or race. To label a woman as nasty, just because she's articulately and intelligently disputing your comments, is an attempt to undermine her. To instantly lean on the trope of angry black woman when a black woman is standing against something is a lowball way of disregarding valid thoughts and opinions as nothing but emotion stemming from a clearly untrue character trait. Ultimately, there needs to be an understanding of the history of such tropes and ideas to remove them. To spread this, we as women need to continue to get angry, be assertive, and by the definition of Professor Chakrabarti Myers, to be as nasty as possible.
For American Student Radio, I'm Blessing Olamorati. So, pride is considered the worst of the seven deadly sins, but is there a good side too? I mean, being self-confident is definitely a good quality, but what about being proud about your race, identity, culture, religion, etc.? I looked into this in my piece. Nowadays, the sin of pride isn't what it used to be. In fact, back when ascetic, aka hardcore, monks would spend years of solitude in the desert, they considered pride to be any thought that attributed something to yourself rather than God. I imagine it would have gone something like this. Wow, I didn't eat anything today. Because fasting was a central part to the ascetic lifestyle. And if I would have thought that my lack of hunger was my own self-will instead of God's, that would be pride. And it wouldn't have just been any sin. It's the worst sin. Pride was considered to sort of open the floodgates for all the other seven deadly sins. But today's not like that at all. In fact, it's considered healthy to be a self-confident person. Although there is another interesting phenomenon of pride that I want to talk about. This isn't the negative, sinful pride. Rather, it's a movement to rediscover self-love among minority groups. The concept of pride movements, LGBT pride, Black Lives Matter, feminist rallies, to name a few. The idea of taking something that was once considered shameful and re-owning it as an assertion of self-love and something to be proud of is not new. When the Friends, also known as Quakers, came to America in the 14th century after leaving persecution in Europe, the term Quakers was used as an insult, because the believers of this denomination would frequently shake with what was called religious fervor. But they reclaimed the meaning as sort of a, yeah, that is who we are. Bringing it back to relatively recent times, during the 60s, civil rights activist Malcolm X was an early supporter of black pride. And this was during a time when being African American was often shamed. The speech you're about to hear is from 1962. Who taught you, please, who taught you to hate the texture of your hair? Who taught you to hate the color of your skin to such extent that you bleach to get like the white man? Who taught you to hate the shape of your nose and the shape of your lips? Who taught you to hate yourself from the top of your head to the soles of your feet? Who taught you to hate your own kind? Who taught you to hate the race that you belong to? So much so that you don't want to be around each other. No, before you come asking Mr. Muhammad, does he teach hate? You should ask who yourself, who taught you to hate being what God gave you. I was interested in learning more about pride movements. So I decided to head over to the LGBT house to find out more. Doug Botter is my name, and I'm the director of the GLBT Student Support Service here at Indiana University. Doug grew up in the Moravian Church, where he was exposed to different cultures from a very young age. Many people have never even heard of the Moravian Church, but it's a tradition that has had a quiet emphasis on social justice. Education is very important, and in days when just the men were educated, men and women were educated. So... It's an approach to Christianity that I think has some pretty positive messages, and I incorporated many of those into my life as I was growing up. Summer camps and things that were, you know, church camps were really fun events with, you know, black kids from Harlem, and I grew up in Pennsylvania in, in sort of a small town, and we got to value people who were different from us, and that was affirmed and valued. 
Doug went to college in the 1960s, a decade that's remembered for its social change. However, he also remembers at the same time there was also a push for positive thinking. Where people were challenged maybe to to think more positively and and so there was a, a a branch of religion I think that was encouraging seeing yourself as someone to be loved and I remember as I was growing up maybe it was the tradition I grew up in um, or again a, an emphasis on Jesus commandment to love your neighbor as yourself and the as yourself was being emphasized in a way that I don't think was forever. And I hadn't thought of it until you you sort of raised the question about that individual way of thinking of yourself in terms of movements um, or minority communities, for instance. But I wonder to what extent that power of positive thinking led to um, civil rights or the women's movement. I'm, I'm at some level of people claiming who they were and and feeling good about that and loving themselves as their neighbor. Doug decided to go to seminary school and become a pastor, which he did for 15 years. However, he was continuously troubled by homosexual thoughts. Eventually, he divorced from his wife and left the church. However, for his passion, however, his passion for social justice was still there, and so he eventually took the position of director of LGBT centers on IU's campus. I want to speak a little more about the the issue of pride because mm-hmm. I think yeah, we absolutely. well we need to be careful about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's like loving yourself. That that passage that I mentioned at the beginning about loving your neighbor as yourself. One's as important as the other, but it's important not to forget the neighbor part too. Mm-hmm. And I think we can. I think people can be prideful in such a way that they forget. Um, you know, they think they're the only people in the world or the only. I it just. It, I, I don't know from a psychological standpoint how to explain this all, but I think, you know, loving yourself and, and, and loving others is, is, is the dynamic and keeping those two in balance um, as opposed to thinking, you know, I'm the best because I'm out or I'm the best because I'm gay or whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. our issues are not the most important in the world, but they have some value and we need to be proud of our heritage. Um, but we need to realize how that relates to people of other cultures, other traditions, other, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah. I see. So are you saying that kind of, it's important to like love yourself, but also, but don't consider yourself greater than other yeah, people because yeah. of what makes you different or yeah. unique or what you're prideful yeah. of? Okay. Yeah, that we all have gifts and we all have, you know, the, the friends or the Quakers have that wonderful expression mm-hmm. of there is that of God in everyone. In Bloomington, I'm Carter Barrett for American Student Radio. Throughout this episode, we've looked at a number of topics that suggest, hey, the seven deadly sins might not be that bad after all. Make sure to turn in next Sunday at noon for our spooky, scary student radio show for all things Halloween. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I've been your host, Carter Barrett. Thanks for listening to American Student Radio. We're produced by students from Indiana University in Bloomington. Follow us on Twitter at ASR Voice and like us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash American Student Radio. Our theme music is provided by Lunamatic. 
Check out Lunamatic's music at www.soundcloud.com slash lunamatic. That's L-U-N-A-M-A-T-I-C. We'll have new episodes every Sunday on WIUX and streaming on our website at www.americanstudentradio.org. 